and welcome to The Outsider's end of year review for 2015. My name is Dylan Caporn and today we'll be joined by nine eminent young people to discuss the year in Australian politics. It's been a pretty big year losing a first term Prime Minister again and the resurgence of a Liberal government ready to find an election in 2016. First up, we're going to discuss the Prime Ministership of Tony Abbott, which started with the terrible decision to knight Prince Philip as a knight in the Order of Australia. Well, I'm really pleased that the Queen has seen fit to award knighthoods in the Order of Australia to Prince Philip for his very long life of duty and service. Joining me to discuss Tony Abbott's Prime Minister is Nick Van Adams. Glad to be here, Dylan. Amy Bracegirdle. Nice to be here. Anthony Spagnolo. Hi, Dylan. And M. Bag. Hey, Dylan. Anthony, I'll start with you. What happened this year with Tony Abbott's Prime Ministership? Well, it's a, it's a short question which could be a, a very long answer um, given all the different things that went on, but I guess the short of it is that he lost the support of the party room and um, he was replaced. And, you know, I guess there's a number of reasons for that. But when it comes down to it, I guess the polls were fairly bad. People, uh, a lot of those backbench MPs, I think, were very nervous. And equally, I think there was people, of Malcolm being number one, who are perhaps not so happy with their position and pretty ambitious. And, and so we saw what happened in Canberra. I think that's a very diplomatic answer, Anthony. But I think the short of it is he made some really, really, really bad calls and showed pretty poor judgment and the Australian people were like, you're not very good. And the Liberal Party was like, actually, A, we want to keep our seats, but B, we've started listening to the Australian people, so let's chuck him out and get someone better. All right, so a diplomatic answer from Anthony. Uh, Amy, from the Labor side of politics, wasn't this a godsend? Uh, I think you could say that lots of people were very sad in the Labor Party to see Tony go. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think um, for the Australian people, I guess it was the right decision for the Liberal Party, um, seeing as lots of people were very unhappy with the calls that he was making. But definitely have to agree with Em um, on her comments. So obviously the year started on Australia Day. Well, it didn't start on Australia Day, but Australia Day was the first big political event of the year where he announced that Prince Philip was going to be knighted, a knight in the Order of Australia. Nick... How did this go so dreadfully wrong? <laughs> it, it was doomed from the start, wasn't it? It was just such a, a terrible decision, as you've said. The barbecues on Australia Day were talking about it. Everyone was of the view, I think, that this was massively out of touch. But I think we've got to also pay some tribute to Malcolm for using it as effectively as he did. And it was the two words, captain's call, that I think were really effective to capitalise on this idea that this was not just a one-off, this was an example, and there were many examples, of Abbott doing it, making his own decision without much consultation, and it was that problem. So not just being out of touch, but failing to be a collaborative and functional cabinet government. And this research, over and over again, we heard captain's call, captain's call. I think through the course of this morning, we might also be talking about a fabulous thing to emerge this year, which was the texts from Malcolm uh, blog. <laughs> and it had, at that time, I remember a text from Abbott saying to, to Malcolm, can you please stop using this expression, captain's call? And his response was, aye, aye. <laughs> so <laughs> That's pretty fantastic. It was, it was, it was a, a bad way to, it was a bad decision, but it was used very effectively by, by Turnbull. One of the ways that 
we can see that is that it was immediately picked up by the media and used for practically every, every decision since. And I mean, I didn't even rem remember that it was attributed to Malcolm because it's been so widely used now and become kind of a part of the lexicon of Australian government. And that's, that's a way that a good communicator can get his message across or her message across and make sure that everyone's listening. Yeah. It was, sorry, it was obviously that matter of internal communication and a breakdown. And we heard, we've heard some things since then about the way the Prime Minister's office operated. Uh, the Chief of Staff, Peter Credlin, was apparently a sort of guardian of Tony Abbott and made sure that he only saw who she wanted him to see. This all sort of escalated in the lead-up to the February spill where Tony Abbott didn't lose to a candidate but lost something like uh, around the mid-30s in the votes. What does it say at that point Two, less than two years into a government that the Prime Minister has lost about a third of the support of the party room. Anthony. <laughs> Thanks, Dylan. Well, I, I mean, you can. it's easy to piece it together now in hindsight, but I guess what really happened based on the comments that we've seen and, and just from observing is, um, I guess there was a number of things that culminated together. Obviously, the, um, the captain's call on Australia, as you've highlighted, took people from a position within the organisation, within the parliamentary party, sorry, who perhaps were, had questions about Tony and his longevity in the role, to, which then became, I guess, fear, because that was a decision that caused a pretty um, negative reaction amongst even a lot of the base of the party. And there didn't really seem to be much good decision-making in terms of dealing with it and setting things back on track, which ultimately culminated in the spill. And that was really not necessary to replace Tony Abbott, but just to send a message that people wanted to see things change. That's what he committed to do. Anyway. And so that I think that that's really explains the first spill. And if you look at the people that moved that motion that were really behind it, it was a lot of marginal seat members who were looking at them losing their spots because of decisions that they didn't even think mattered. I think people are happy to lose political capital on bigger issues like tax reform, but not on nights and days, which is probably less important to day-to-day -day people's lives. After the spill, Tony Abbott held a press conference where he called the spill a near-death experience and he promised to lead a more consultative government. My door is open. Uh, my phone is there. Um, I answer my phone. Uh, I listen to my messages. Uh, and I certainly want to build on the kind of dialogue that I've been having with my colleagues uh, over recent weeks. Because um, if we are all working together, we are an incredibly powerful government. Uh, a government which is united and working together is incredibly powerful. Em, did anyone believe him? Well, I didn't. <laughs> and I'm a member of the Liberal Party, so oh, look at that. <laughs> I am. I'm a paid-up member of the Liberal Party. And just because I have different views than a majority of young Liberals doesn't mean that I am not. In fact, it shows that the Liberal Party is a great broad church. It's a broad church. church. <laughs> it's a broad church, 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 which is what it's all about. And which is what, which is what the, the spill showed, I think. It showed that everyone has a, that people in the Liberal Party have a difference of opinion and that they can have differences of opinion, even in such a public forum, and move on and still govern relatively like the sky's not falling down. So, I mean... I don't think that many people believe Tony Abbott, partly because, particularly because it was the people in his party who were on his wing of the party who were coming out and saying, you need to change your style, and you haven't changed your style, and we've seen him in opposition and then in government with the same style that was particularly wooden and didn't seem to be, be able to be flexible and to change with, with, the, with the way that 
Australian people wanted it to change or at least the party room wanted it to change. And that, I think that's why people didn't believe in this because he'd gone from opposition to government and that's a change in itself. You've got to change from being an opposition into prime minister. If he didn't make the change then, then wasn't really going to be able to. I was about to say, the change is a really interesting point this year and does anyone on the panel right now think that Tony Abbott changed after that February spell or was it just a continuation of bad government? There, there was a change in the visibility of Credlin. Um, mm. That was a, a change. Was it a change with any real effect? It doesn't appear so. Abbott himself... Having this near-death experience, I think there's an expectation that there would be significant change, and I think there certainly was not that. I think there was changes, but just not enough to deal with the problem. There needed to be more than what happened, and really we needed to see an improvement in the polls, because um, that was really the core of the problem, this fear from backbenchers that they were going to lose their seats, that we were going to get wiped out. But the, the most uh, significant thing in, in their minds was the Queensland election. I mean, that's if you look at the spill, Queensland in particular really came down on the Malcolm side, of that spill and that that was a huge part of him losing it the knights and dames thing um a lot of them saw as responsible for campbell newman losing control of queensland remember they only lost by one or two seats in queensland and um the polling that was going on before the knights and dames decision in, in queensland and afterwards was just very telling and certainly a lot of them blamed um abbott for that and you know he never really dealt with that fear and, and so he didn't change enough and, and in the end they they made the decision i think one of the interesting things that we've got to know is that Anthony just said Queensland came down on the Malcolm side of the spill. And we need to remember that the February spill didn't actually have a contender. And people may have, might have said, oh, well, it's the Malcolm side of the spill in hindsight because, like, you know, he was always getting the numbers and all that rubbish. But actually, there wasn't a contender. They came down on the side of the spill that said, hey, we don't like what's happening. We want anyone but Tony Abbott. It could have been, I mean, it could have been Joe Hockey for all anyone cared. As long as it wasn't Tony Abbott, that's... That was the problem, and I, it, it's it's good for some people to be able to go back and kind of rewrite history and say, well, mm. Malcolm was looking for this all along, and that spill was all his his idea. But actually, it was the West Australian backbenchers who are not particularly close to Malcolm Turnbull, and particularly not ideologically. And because of that, we need to, you know, don't, it's there's a temptation to rewrite history, particularly amongst you know those members of the Liberal Party that doesn't like don't like the history, but. We can't do that. I'm a massive Malcolm fan, as I know you are, mm -hmm. but I, th I think we now understand that at that point there were discussions between the relevant people and it was very much Turnbull. Positioning, as, as, yeah. yeah. I, think that, understood. I yeah. think that's fair, but the fact is that the ballot wasn't for Turnbull and the ballot, if, uh, we can say that that's mm. kind of what was going on behind the scenes, but the ballot was Tony Abbott or anyone else. And that's what the people mm. would have seen. They would have said it's Abbott or other. It's worth noting, actually, that of all the leadership ballots that Abbott faced, that was actually his best result. It was the first time he won by one vote. And so I don't really think that ballot was about changing Prime Minister. I think it was just about a reaction to the Queensland election and the Knights and Dames decision and just sending a message, which obviously culminated in the second spill and thus changing Prime Minister. At one point in 2016, the polls, there was a two-party preferred poll from Roy Morgan. Now, it's not the most reputable polling organisation in Australia. But the poll results were 57-43 in favour of the Labor Party. The same Labor Party that just two years before was in a complete sense of disarray. All of a sudden, it was a almost a 15-16 point turnaround in some polls. Did Tony Abbott have to go? Yes. 
is there a, do you need a longer answer to that question? Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there is a longer answer to that question. I mean, yes. Well, he's since come out and said he could have won the next election. Uh, well, I don't think that's true. I don't think anyone agrees that that's true. I, I agree that he could have won. Um, I know that some, you know, people find it hard to believe, and I understand what the polling said. But in the end, the poll that matters is election day. Um, the polling towards any of his prime minister wasn't as bad as fifty-seven forty-three. And um, as we've seen with the Liberal Party time and time again, the polls always um, tighten up as they get close to the election. Usually we start a couple of percentage points behind of incumbent through. We're much better campaigners than Labor. Um, we also had the advantage of incumbency. And um, being someone, I guess, at that time and I guess currently di um, deeply involved in, in the, in the organisation of the party and having pretty good understanding of how this stuff works, I, w I was confident and I'm still confident that he would have won. It would, he probably, I think, Malcolm will, will win the next election and probably by a lot more than if he would have had Abbott there, but I'm confident that Abbott could have beat Bill Shorten. I, I agree. I think it's, Tony Abbott could have won, particularly if Bill Shorten keeps smashing into other people's cars and texting mm, yeah. while driving. I think if it yeah. was in a head-to-head, -head, I think yeah. Abbott had a real chance. I think Turnbull will smash it. Then again, you know, there's chairs that could beat Bill Shorten. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my view as well. Yeah. So. Now, obviously, the highlight of the year, I think, for the Liberal Party was New South Wales. A big state, of, nothing like a good state election victory for pump up the party. Now, Mike Baird, one of the cutest boys in Australian oh, politics, so cute. took out a, a stunning victory despite a debate in New South Wales about privatisation of polls. Um, is there... And by polls, he doesn't mean opinion polls. It's yeah, electricity polls, ele right? Electricity yeah. polls, that's it. And obviously, the big thing in New South Wales was they changed their leader from an ICAC inquiry resignation. It was sort of this perfect storm for Labor to storm back into government, but... They just couldn't do it. Is was New South Wales the victory in New South Wales the best thing for the Liberal Party this year? No, the change in Prime Minister was the best thing for the Liberal Party. Come on, Dylan. I didn't know you. I, I had no idea you'd say that. Ed. Oh well, look, look. But Mike Baird is fantastic, and I think one of the things that Mike Baird has done is he's really, you know, what you could say the Bachelor thing was a publicity stunt, live tweeting the Bachelorette final. You could it was, say it was that an practically <laughs> anything he's done, you know, arriving to Parliament House in his um, DeLorean. Is that the thing yeah, from the Back to the Future? future. Yeah. Okay, that um, was a publicity stunt. But he did it in a way that engaged with the voters. He's talks to them, t talks to voters on a level that says like, "Hey, I know what you want, but there are some problems. Here are the problems, and here's how we're going to achieve it." And he also isn't afraid to go out and say. A, we want to privatise stuff, but let's have a debate about GST. And I think people really respect that he has the courage to stand up for his convictions and say, this is what we want to do, here's the future, I'm going to engage with you and here's how we're going to run a government. Amy, is Mike Baird the greatest Premier in Australian <laughs> history? <laughs> well, I was actually just going to say, what about Dan Andrews? I think he's pretty great in Victoria. I mean, yes, there's been some great stuff that's um, happened in state governments this year, but I mean, I think something that is really shameful is the ongoing GST debate. Um, there's massive issues, I guess, in the way that GST is done. Um, if you have, you know, sponge cake that is GST but sanitary items aren't, I think that's a real issue. And, you know, that's half of Australian society that has to deal with that. And I think there's definitely some wider discussions that need to happen with GST before we increase it by 15%. Then, obviously, May, Joe Hockey's uh, second and final budget... It was sort of a big event lauded with uh, Tony Stratus, who, you know, formerly known as Kevin Rudd's working families and Howard's battlers and those people Paul Keating told to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> the, the budget was 
well received? Uh, was there anything... Uh, it, it, I felt like it hasn't been as debated as last year's budget. It's just sort of under the radar, uh, almost like an election year budget. I think following on from last year's budget, we didn't really need to do much to be more warmly received. Um, but my impression was it wasn't really engaged with. There were bigger news stories, there were bigger political stories in the budget, um, and there was still the elephant in the room of what's happening with leadership. So I think the budget was a lot better, uh, but by no means a good budget that really changed the course for the government. I think it was a good budget, and perhaps the why it was the reason why it was debated less is simply because it was less controversial. There was less um, things to attack because it was good. I mean, it looked after small business. Um, it made it pushed through a number of very important reforms and. To answer your previous question, what was the biggest thing for the Liberal Party? So I think the biggest thing has been um, these continu continuing success from free trade agreements. I mean, when you talk about personalities and things like that and who's a leader, but in the end what really matters is, is what the government's doing. These free trade agreements are uh, really are a bedrock of future prosperity for the country. And, you know, that's really, that's happened with Malcolm there and will continue with him and it's happened under Abbott. And that's something that's hugely significant and that people should look at. So after a uh, relatively quiet winter break, there became, came some revelations from the Herald Sun about Bronwyn Bishop's uh, transport uh, and how she had flown a helicopter to Geelong for a Liberal Party fundraiser uh, instead of catching a train or having a car. No, she went for the helicopter. Uh, how, why was this handled so poorly? She stood down after three weeks. She gave a press conference where she said, you don't need to apologise for something that's in the guidelines, but was a complete wart in the eyes of the Australian public. Why, Amy, did it take so long for the government to act on this? I'm not sure why it took so long, but I think you can compare um, the difference between the P Peter Slipper incident and Bronwyn Bishop, and there was a complete difference in, I guess, the way that the media reacted um, and also the way that the government government reacted. I mean, you still had things in question time and people saying things online, but... I mean, I guess it I think it would depend on each person how long you can take, I guess, um, the criticism online and stuff like that before you actually do something about it. You know, you look at Tony Abbott and he dealt with those criticisms for however long. So, um, whereas Bronwyn obviously didn't. doesn't have yeah. a Facebook account. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, was it hard for Tony? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you don't know Tony personally, but for someone who Tony described as his I think so, obviously. I think they, their seats share a, share a border and they've been friends for a long time. And I think um, it came down to Tony Abbott's loyalty to his friends. He was obviously loyal to her. Um, and again, I think it, you know, it, it pains me to say, but I really do think it played into the leadership. He didn't really want to do anything that destabilised, in, in my judgment. I don't know this necessarily firsthand, but I feel like his reluctance to deal with it was really fear about his leadership. That's someone who was one of his supporters. Um, he didn't want to be seen to be too ruthless with her internally and get rid of her when that could destabilise um, things. And in the end, ultimately, she ended up not voting for him, and so he was, I guess his judgment was right, if that's what he was thinking. I think Bronwyn Bishop was always going to have a bad legacy as Speaker. I think her conduct as Speaker was exceptionally <coughs> bad. I think of all the things the Abbott government did, one of the least conservative things they did was to put in a person who radically changed the conduct of Parliament. And I think the politicisation of the role uh, uh, was quite remarkable. And on top of that, 
I might add that the replacement, Tony Smith, is an excellent speaker, one of the best ones we've had yes. in as many years. He's fair, he's reasonable. I'd absolutely agree. And I, I was just a bit sad that the Australian people don't watch as much as much question time as I clearly do. Because I thought <laughs> Troublegate was not the worst thing she did by any means. It was mm. Her conduct as speaker was just far more significant and damaging to our democracy. But that's not what um, people really get excited about. Then, one sunny September morning in Canberra, they do happen, Malcolm Turnbull fronted the press to announce he was challenging Tony Abbott for Prime Ministership. This sort of came on quite quickly. I remember where I was when it happened and all of a sudden there was this mad scramble to fill the next day's papers with Malcolm's <laughs> challenging, Malcolm's challenging and you know, Prince was behind. But Malcolm's challenge identified serious problems with the government, highlighted what he'd do differently. It was remarkably different to the Labor tour of 2010. Was this the correct way to get rid of the first term Prime Minister? I think it was certainly better than the way that Labor handled their spill. Um, it showed that there was there was a challenger and that these were the problems and here's why we're fixing them. But not only these are the problems, it's these are the problems you've identified and here's how we're going to fix them because we want to work as the Australian government that works for Australian people and here are, here are your problems with us, so this is what we're going to fix. And not only that, but it was a beautiful, eloquent charming speech she spoke off the bat um to the cameras very nice setting made sure everything was was really it was a great performance um in terms of a show and because of that because it was nice and out and open i think everyone accepted it and they could watch it unfold anthony's jumping out of his chair <laughs> I'm just, I'm just um, smiling at Emma's enthusiasm for our prime minister. It's good, to, good, to, good to see you so inspired. So much love. <laughs> Should Abbott have been given more time? Well, I don't know if I should even answer that. I mean, it is what it is. Um, I think that, um, as I said earlier in the in the podcast, I think that he would have won the next election, um, and, albeit by less than what I expect Turnbull will win by. I think the spill was. As much as there was a desire to fix things, I also think a lot of it was just opportunistic by a lot of people who were um, perhaps backbenchers or people in the lower down ministry position that wanted to be promoted and saw an opportunity in a change of leader um, to do it. And really the timing of it um, in the middle of the Canning Bar election, I think, really points to that because what, what I expect would have happened, and this is certainly how I was seeing things at the time, I remember saying this to people in conversation as the week went on, um, expecting us to get a good result in and, and Andrew Hastie to win quite well. And the expectation set by the media that, media that it was going to be a 51-49 result when actually it was going to be much better than that, would actually be put a, um, insert a bit of confidence into the government and Abbott's ability to win. Um, and things would have settled from there. Um, and we would have probably had a ministerial reshuffle anyway. And that would have set things the course going into the next election. But of course, um, they went for this hugely risky move in changing prime ministers two or three days out from the the, um, the campaign. And and as we saw, it had no effect, and Andrew still won convincingly. So I think really a lot of it was there was a lot of opportunism opportunism there as well. Tonight there were two ballots conducted in the Liberal Party room: one ballot for leader, one ballot for deputy leader. In the leadership was contested by Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott. Malcolm Turnbull was successful on 54, Tony Abbott 44. 54 votes to 44. That's the amount that Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister by. Uh, here he is speaking with Julie Bishop at a press conference held at 11pm at night. This has been a very important 
sobering experience today. I'm very humbled by it. I'm very humbled by the great honour and responsibility that has been uh, given to me today. We need to have, in this country, and we will have now, an economic vision, a leadership that explains the great challenges and opportunities that we face, describes the way in which we can handle those challenges, seize those opportunities, and does so in a manner that the Australian people understand. Joining M to discuss Malcolm Turnbull's new reign of power is Nick Barron. Hi, Dylan. Ali Matthews. Hey, Dylan. And Aidan Depiati. Great to be here. Thanks Welcome. for being here. Well, we'll start with you, Em. Uh, I hear you're a little bit of a fan of him. He's absolutely wonderful, and I think that the way that he has managed to inspire some optimism in the Australian public is perhaps, even if he didn't do anything else, that has done quite a lot. And also the optimism in the backbenches. Ali, what do you think? Are you a Malcolm fan? I am. I think he's got a little bit of work to do, but I think when it was a short and Abbott head-to-head uh, -head contest, I think maybe what contributed to the original success of the Labor Party was that Shorten did have policies that kind of looked to the future and that he was an Abbott, and I think that was kind of his, uh, I guess, trump card. But I think now Turnbull can trump Shorten on both of those counts. He's not Abbott, and he does have these kind of future-looking uh, policies. So I think that that's probably uh, a really good thing for the Liberal Party in that we do have a really strong um, leader now who's well and truly able to uh, storm home with the next election. One of the first things Malcolm Turnbull did was obviously reshuffle the cabinet to get rid of some dead wood. Uh, Erica Betts, Kevin Andrews were shoved aside and replaced with people such as uh, WA Senator Michaelia Cash and Maurice Payne, a, a little-known a little senator from the uh, small state of New South Wales. Uh, senator Payne has done an excellent job of defence. Aidan, how good was this reshuffle and who are all these women people are talking about? Uh, there were you know, a wide range of views about the, the reshuffle. Personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of Erica Betts and Kevin Andrews, and, and you might have thought that they'd been around for a long time, but in many ways they carried experience from the Howard era um, into the Abbott government that benefited the Abbott government to a great extent. Um, both of them were stalwarts of the party that I think the party base were very big fans of and had confidence that their role in the Abbott government kept the Abbott government in line with the, the party values. You know, that said, uh, you know, the ministry is at the discretion of the leader and he, he made decisions obviously to fit the new character of the government and the new direction of the, the Turnbull government. He needed new people on board. I think it's excellent that, that Eric and Kevin have stuck around in the parliament to keep the parliamentary party uh, as broad a church. And the diversity in the cabinet, that was a constant issue in the in the, for the Abbott government was this introduction of some very talented female politicians a welcome move for the Liberal Party? It's definitely a welcome move. It's fantastic to see that there are more women. There obviously aren't enough women and there obviously aren't enough people who aren't white. Um, and that's definitely something that the Liberal Party needs to work on. However, Ken Wyatt being an Assistant Minister for Health is fantastic and really welcome and I think that he's going to do really great things. The diversity in the Cabinet has always been an issue and I think one of the, the problems with the last cabinet you might have said that you know Abetz and Andrews were stalwarts of the party and should have been there because they were in the Howard era and that made them you know that made them experienced in their ministerial capacities 
I think there's a difference between being experienced and being talented. And just because you've like spent a lot of time time in a ministerial office doesn't mean that you're good at what you do. And one of the things that Turnbull did was he picked it based on merit um, in a lot of cases, which brought in a lot more diversity because that's what's bound to happen when you recognise that people are, who aren't necessarily old white men are able to achieve things as well. But it did it rejuvenated the cabinet in such a way that uh, it got rid of that dead wood that I don't agree they were experienced um, because they were good at their jobs. I think they were experienced because they were loyal to particular people on the conservative side of politics and that made them really helpful in that way. And I think that's why you're seeing such big backlash from that side of the party because they're suddenly losing something that they probably didn't have a right to for so long. Anyway. Nick, the uh, change in leader obviously gave it a big boost to the Liberal Party. Uh, how has how has Malcolm Turnbull changed the fortunes of the Liberal government? What has he done specifically? Well, I think there's no doubt that the government's fortunes have changed, and it, it's silly to pretend otherwise. I think more than anything else, uh, what Malcolm Turnbull's done is usher in a change in tone, and I say that because, as Tony Abbott and the Labor Party will gleefully point out, not very much has changed on the policy front at all in the months since Malcolm Turnbull has become Prime Minister. So it's primarily a shift in the way the government does business rather than what the government does in the course of its business. I think, though, that there's some shallowness to Malcolm Turnbull's popularity and that hypothesis will have to be tested out over a number of months. But I do think it's not simply the case that he is uh, a universally beloved figure and I don't think it's necessarily the case either that he has cracked the nut of Australian politics. He... He strikes me as someone who is quite vain and who seems to think that he's figured out kind of that Australian politics is not quite a mugs game, perhaps the opposite of that, something that he feels he has mastered and knows all the rules to. But there's a brittleness to that, which I think was exposed by his recent interview with Lee Sales on the 7.30 report, where he thought he could simply charm his way through. And, you know, as much as he derided Tony Abbott for the, the three-word slogans, he really simply has longer canned lines that he trots out um, and if, words yeah, yeah, and if people try to steer him away from those, then he, he becomes quite aggressive and quite off-putting. Um, and so it remains to be seen whether or not that is a real weakness that can be exploited or whether or not uh, whether or not he'll collapse on his own or whether or not maybe he has figured it all out and he'll be riding high for months or years to come. I think that's a really interesting point, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Is this just a honeymoon? Is this, um, there's something else in the polls at the moment He's preferred Prime Minister 65 to Bill Shorten's 14%. And, you know, my question is, what's wrong with those 14% of people? But that, that honeymoon period, it can only go on for so long. What happens when the shine starts coming off Malcolm? And when do you expect that to happen? I think maybe taking, uh, taking on this issue of the GST is probably going to be quite challenging for him. I think because he's still seen as leading a coalition... Um, of the affluent. I think he's probably got a lot of work to do in in the sense that I think Labor probably at the moment is struggling um, to kind of straddle both sides of, you know, your traditional Labor working class and your kind of increasing group of like inner city, um, relatively affluent progressives. And I think that as it becomes harder for Labor to kind of appeal to both of those different groups, I think that's where Malcolm probably could come in 
and appeal to those sorts of progressive that he is kind of seen as a more progressive kind of liberal. So I think that's probably where he should be looking to gain supporters. I think uh, taking on the GST is probably not his wisest move. Obviously, the big word of recent months has been innovation, 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 and it's never been a greater time to be an Australian citizen. Uh, is this innovation policy just a way of separating yourself from the ideological backlog that was the Abbott government in science and technology? Nick? I don't think it's quite that. I think that it's something that he genuinely believes in. Whether or not it's something that's really going to translate into very much over the long term, I, I seriously doubt this idea that, you know, with a few key investments and so on, we're all going to be making apps that, you know, blow up around the world. It, it, the sort of disruptive ideas that have come out, particularly out of Silicon Valley and other places over the last few years, have had the effect of putting people out of work rather than into work and degrading working conditions rather than raising them. So I don't think that it's necessarily something that's going to lead to a jobs boom or a really big investment boom, the effects of which ordinary people will feel. It's a nice story for the short term, uh, but I don't think that it's really going to translate into very much over the longer term. But that's not the point of it, right? The point of it is to start that that, that ideas boom and the, the creative economy and all, the, all those sorts of buzzwords. Okay, the but what does that is, mean? The idea is investment in those sorts of areas. It's not to get, you know, to... to build jobs, growth, all those sorts of things in, you know, for working people or to better working conditions. It's to build innovation and investment in that sector. And that could be the technology sector, that could be any sort of, any, um, the, the finance sector, those sorts of things that don't necessarily mean, um, you know, poorer working conditions or those sorts, or that sort of thing underneath. I think the first thing, the thing that's important about this particular policy is I think as Nick said, he does genuinely believe in this, and I think it's the first policy that he's made that is a stepping stone towards differentiating himself from the Abbott government. So to answer your earlier question, yes, it is important as a stepping stone to make sure that he can build on that and say this is the, the direction in which we are going. That doesn't mean that he's not going to have policies in the future that say, okay, well, here's what we're going to do about working conditions and, and work, workplace flexibility, because that's probably something that's going to come along the line very soon, mm. is workplace flexibility and unionisation and all those fun things that I'm sure Nick wants to talk about. Um, but those sorts of things are things that are going to happen um, after this policy has gone through, and this is kind of a way that he can say, this is what I believe in, this is what's important to me, this is what's important to the Australian economy going forward. Yeah, no, I, th I think the, the innovation, the, the, the statement that he released, uh, it is a long-term thing. It's not a short-term thing at all. Its political flavour might be might have an effect in the short term, and, and in a sense, yes, it's a it's a Malcolm thing. If Abbott had won the spill in September, we would not have had a, an innovation statement released this week. Which would um, have been a shame. Well, yes, in a sense, but it's, it's something different, um, but it's not something disagreeable either. I mean, I haven't heard anyone from the Labor Party stand up and say, well... We're not really in favour of innovation. Uh, we don't want to be agile and nimble. Um, it's not a controversial thing to have done. It's good. A lot of the microeconomic reforms contained within bankruptcy and that sort of thing are excellent. But they set up the Australian economy for long-term success, I think. It's not intended to you know, raise the standard of living in the next couple of months. It's long-term economic planning, which is good. It's a, a good reform to see from the Turnbull government. And you can't dig ideas out of the ground for $38 a tonne. One of the bigger issues over the last couple of weeks has been the decision of former Industry Minister Ian McFarlane to defect to uh, the National Party in, in his Queensland seat of 
room. This decision has been uh, criticised by some Liberals, saying it's opportunistic, and it could mean that Ian McFarlane might take the deputy leadership of the National Party should Barnaby Joyce become leader of the National Party. Or there's even a rumour going around that he'll just skip Barnaby and go straight to the leadership. Uh, I'll open up this panel. Ian McFarlane was very close to Malcolm Turnbull when he was opposition leader. He was in there with him negotiating the EPS. Is this a big blow for Malcolm? It looked... I think it is, it's obviously a blow to some degree, it's going to have an impact. I think what it really reflects, though, is another weakness of Malcolm Turnbull's that might also emerge over the time ahead of us, which is that he did, for a guy who portrays himself as the anti-politician, someone who's above the fray and all the rest of it, he did a lot of deals to wind up where he is, um, and they involved elevating a lot of people and screwing a lot of people over. And one of those who got screwed was Ian McFarlane. One of those who got elevated was Mal Bruff. Um, and now we're seeing the consequences of some of those decisions starting to emerge in the political discourse. And that could be really damaging for Malcolm Turnbull. Certainly any kind of coalition disunity looks bad. Whether or not it really has an electoral effect, I don't know at this point, but it's possible that all these things, all these, the consequences of all these deals cumulatively might start to show up uh, further down the line. I think it was interesting when Ian McFarlane uh, first came out and said, this is actually a, a huge vote of confidence in Malcolm Turnbull because my alternative was to leave Parliament. Um, I think merely saying that doesn't make it true. I think there is, as Nick was saying, long-term issues with this in the sense that he could probably take a position at the expense of a Liberal. So I think it probably... Um, also highlights the fact that uh, Malcolm Turnbull probably needs to get a bit of a handle on the kind of division that you see within the, the Liberal Party and sort of, I guess, strengthen his support base because I think that even though Ian McFarlane said that he does have a vote of confidence in Malcolm Turnbull, I think his actions and uh, the potential consequences of those actions uh, speak otherwise. To me, literally what it shows is the way that politicians operate in terms of transplantation and taking a long-term view of the government that looks at it as an agile, nimble government that deals with the future and deals with problems that are in the future and has a cabinet that looks towards diversity, that looks towards youth and that looks towards people who can operate in uh, an economy and a country that is becoming, that needs people who are kind of up with the technology and all those sorts of things. You're going to have to push out some people who are older and bring in some people who are younger. And Ian McFarlane really went at the at, for people like Wyatt Roy to join the ministry and Christopher Pine to take industry and science and innovation and those sorts of things that he's quite fond of talking about. And to me, in terms of looking forward, building a government that's probably, hopefully, going to be around for the long term, you know, you want a government that's going to be around for 10 years. So what do you do? You bring in people who are young and who can stick around and get that experience. Um, and Ian McFarlane kind of was just like, ah, oh, I've got a bit of sour grapes about this one and I'm going to go and find myself a minister at the National Party. Well, I mean, you just mentioned Christopher Pine and Wyatt Roy as two people who Ian McFarlane had to make way for. So what Malcolm Turnbull has done is excuse Ian McFarlane, who you know, wasn't really in the Erica Betts, Kevin Andrews mould of people who the the media was portraying as incompetent ministers. He was quite highly regarded. So he got the boot and Wyatt Roy and Christopher Pine came in. Those are two people who are named in a federal police search warrant as part of an ongoing criminal investigation along with Mal Bruff. So, I mean, if, that's, if setting yourself up for the future means bringing in people who are under 
criminal investigation. Maybe you don't need to worry about the long term so much. Maybe you should be keeping your eye more on the immediate term because this is a big problem for Malcolm Turnbull that he's created. It's not anyone else who's done this. This is a, a, an issue of his own making. Should Malcolm Turnbull sack Nabla? Yes. Yes. He should be stood aside, you know, pending the outcome of the investigation. But, I mean, I think it's just a reflection of how quickly the spill occurred. Malcolm put together a cabinet on, rel- I think, on relatively short notice. And I think Nick's correct in pointing out that the, the ministry assembly, uh, assembled was based on, you know, who supported whom in the spill. The odd uh, person like Ian McFarlane that was locked out, and I think the, the analysis is correct. Uh, he has been around for a long time, um, and, uh, you know, Malcolm wasn't relying on his support in particular. Um, but, yeah, Mal Brough, um, I think, not the best decision ever made um, to put someone, particularly, uh, I can't help but the Labor Party is correct to point out, you know, as, as um, Special Minister of State, to put him in charge of government integrity. Um, it's almost Very beautiful. bad timing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it is a privilege to lead such a united team infused with common purpose and a complete desire to make this country better. Bill Shorten, uh, Labor leader, has uh, had an interesting year. He started the year uh, on a high and has finished as Mr. 14%. That's 14 out of every 100 people you cross in the street support Bill Shorten. What sort of society do you want to live in? Joining Nick and Amy to discuss Bill Shorten and Richard Di Natale's year in politics is Daryl. Hi. And Tom. Bill Shorten started off the year on a high, as I said. Uh, where did it all go wrong? Well, Bill has had uh, what a lot of people call reality holiday for the last 18 months. Compared to, um, compared to the new Prime Minister, uh, you know, there really is no comparison right now. I, mean, you just, uh, I, I noticed from the latest Essential poll, and if you make some assumptions, that people who support uh, particular leaders for uh, the leader of the party, if you assume that they also support the prime, that person as Prime Minister... Um, the three uh, preferred candidates uh, for the Labor Party, Bill, uh, Tanya Plibersek and Anthony Albanese, combined don't have the support that Malcolm Turnbull has as the pre- preferred Prime Minister. So uh, I think they... Uh, it, it's a matter of being in a shambles uh, as a party, I think, as well as just having a leader who's struggling. Amy, is there anything Bill Shorten can do to turn the tide? Uh I'm not sure. I mean, it's a tough question. I think that um, Labor has some really good policies that they want to get up when they are in government and they've got some really great ideas. It's just whether we have someone that really can engage with the voters, I guess. And I think he did a really good job in the first, I guess, well, while Tony Abbott was Prime Minister and engaging and being, I guess, um, one of the people. But I guess only time will tell if he will keep going on as the opposition leader. Nick, there was quite a few policies from Labor this year. There was superannuation, climate yeah. change, yeah. there was climate change. Renewable energy. Renewable energy. Were they successes or have they sort of lost any weight they carried since Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister? Well, I mean, they have the exact same weight they always had, which is that the policies of an opposition a long way out from an election, they're, they're all, there's always a certain ephemeral quality uh, to them. They're still there and they're all, there's still a lot of good ideas there. Um, and I think they served their purpose uh, as the year went on, which was to differentiate Bill Shorten and the Labor Party from the conservative side of politics. Um, I think it also demonstrates the shallow nature of our political discourse that you know they haven't really received very much 
media attention and indeed you know policy in general gets a pretty short gets the short end of the stick when it comes to uh, discussion of Australian politics it very much centers on personalities and polls um, but I don't think that any of the Labor Party's current uh, polling difficulties can be sheeted home to their policy platform throughout the year I think it's been a very forward-looking very progressive and overall quite well received platform um, unfortunately as Tony Abbott very clearly showed over his tenure in opposition policy is not what gets it done I think, I mean, the real downfall of the Labor government um, federally is that we need to show ourselves as an alternative government um, rather than opposition. We need to show and differentiate ourselves, as you were saying. And I think that Labor's just not doing enough to differentiate itself from Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal government. I th and that, I think that's something they really need to work on. The new Prime Minister does neutralise a lot of the issues um, because of his you know, well-known position on a number of things which Labor has sought to differentiate itself on. Um, including, you know, Republic and same-sex marriage and so on. Um, but uh, the Labor Party remained fundamentally unreconstructed since the Rudd-Gillard period. A lot of people who were on the front bench were just front benches for, for uh, Labor during that period, um, and that continues to cause problems for them. Um, the primary vote now, we're talking about, is 30% um, on, uh, on some polls anyway. Um, from that, and, and what, what was being said about providing an alternative, you get credibility as an alternative when the government starts to look shaky, that's the that's the, uh, the advantage of being in, incumbent. Um, and if the party, um, you know, the, rather if the government is strong and if the, the leader looks strong and there appears to be an agenda, uh, then generally speaking, you don't get the you know you don't get the oxygen. Daryl, uh, was Bill Shorten's biggest asset that he wasn't Tony Abbott? I, I think it certainly worked uh, in his favour uh, that uh, he wasn't Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott was very unpopular. Um, and he did ride, uh, as, as uh, Tom said, a, a bit of a, he had a bit of a vacation from reality uh, for a bit. But, you know, uh, he has a tough challenge against Malcolm Turnbull, who's a very charismatic uh, leader, a very popular leader. But I think that uh, when uh, the dust settles from the, the leadership change, uh, as Nick and Amy alluded to, uh, the Labor Party has some very progressive uh, policies that should appeal and energise uh, its its voter base. In a way, Bill was actually a very successful leader, and will be will be uh, you know a same uh, will be remembered in a, in a similar way. I think to Tony Abbott in terms of his success, he removed to a large degree, or he, he succeeded. Um, if uh, if you consider that removing a prime minister uh, is the is the kind of objective of an opposition leader, um, but now the uh, you know now the the comparison uh, that he has to face is extremely different. He even said, you know, I share the I share the relief of the uh, Australian people and so on, which uh, tends to indicate that, you know, it's, uh, it's tough. Will he lead Labor to the next election? That's something that I don't think anyone around this table can really proffer an opinion on because the way the Labor Party's current rules work makes it very much Bill's decision. So it's really Especially up to him. Especially after the last. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, for Tom to say that the Labor Party remains fundamentally unreconstructed is, I think, untrue a large number of the major players in the Rudd-Gillard years left Parliament ahead of the 2013 election. Uh, the Labor Party internally, I think, is as united um, and as single-minded as it's ever been and is ever likely to be. Um, so that really leaves the ball in Bill's court. The question, you know, the centre-left has faced its issues around the world this year, and it's interesting to look at what's worked and what hasn't. So obviously in the UK, um, Ed Miliband led the Labor Party there to an unexpected crushing defeat. Uh, whereas in Canada, uh, Justin Trudeau led the Liberal Party 
Canada not to be confused, of course, with the Liberal Party of Australia to a thumping election victory. Um, both pursued very different strategies. Uh, Ed Miliband kind of taking the small target route and Justin Trudeau going big on everything. Um, it'll be interesting. Australian politics can't be directly compared to those two countries, but we do share some similarities. It remains to be seen, I think, whether or not Bill Shorten can really find it uh, in himself to capture the energy and uh, sense of vitality and authenticity that it takes to really succeed in Australian politics at the moment. It's a bit paradoxical because I've seen him speak in person um, and he is a very engaging person. Uh, it doesn't necessarily come across as much on TV or in his media appearances. I want to cut right now to uh, a mobile phone recording of Bill Shorten in a pub earlier this year. One day... One day I hope that you belong in a country where marriage equality is legitimate. Where our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians are on the national birth certificate as a constitution. Where people can organise to have a strong minimum wage and they will not be subject to a royal commission. see that side of Bill Shorten more often? I mean, aside from the fact he probably had a midi beforehand. I think, look, that's a very good question, and I agree with Nick. I've, I've seen uh, Bill in person many times, and I, I, I find him a very charismatic and, and energising uh, leader. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes you know that doesn't translate through um, in the media because of a variety of reasons, uh, a, a, lack of, um, a lack of time, a lack of uh, in-depth analysis on on, uh, on Shorten and his policies and, 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 and his character. Earlier this year, uh, Greens leader Christine Milne announced that she was leaving politics and would leave Parliament altogether. So uh, Richard Di Natale, the Victorian Senator, was elected leader of the party. Now, I want to ask the panel, have the Greens done anything this year? I think the Greens have done a lot internally. I think the Greens are realigning themselves more and more away from their environmental activist roots and repositioning themselves uh, as a real inner city party, which is having some quite distasteful effects on uh, their policy positioning um, in federal parliament and elsewhere. I would say they are moving to the right economically um, and that it, it, it would not be a stretch to say that in the future you will be more likely to see maybe at a local or state level more liberal green coalitions than you would Labour green. And I think Richard Di Natale is part of that. Is is he doing a good job as leader of the Greens, Gareth? Um, I mean, look, I think Nick's observations are, are fairly accurate. He is moving uh, the, the the party uh, economically uh, towards uh, the right, and uh, um, how that plays out uh, for uh, the Greens' support remains to be seen. Um, Amy, what does this say about a progressive party that replaces a female leader with? both a male leader and a male Senate replacement. Is that... And an all-male economic team. <laughs> and an all-male economic team. And uh, one female in their leadership group of three. Can they claim to be progressive? I don't think that's a very progressive road to take. I mean, you have to, I guess, look at other political groups. And when I think all political parties really should be including more women. And I think that is definitely the road to take. And I think... You know, the Labor Party has definitely been seen to do that this year um, in their um, state or federal conference, um, you know, putting up a 50-50 quota. 
Um, and I think that's something that most parties should be pursuing. Um, and I think it is a real shame that we're, you know, um, not letting um, women take those positions and putting men first. Well, when the Liberal Party has more female members in its uh, economic team than the Greens, you know it's a strange, strange world we're in. Uh, and now the panellists will give their predictions for 2016, starting off with Daryl. I predict that the GWS will be the 2016 AFL Premiers. Uh, Nick? It's a uh, prediction and a hope that the Liberal Party drops the plebiscite for gay marriage. Uh, that would be an excellent use of resources to achieve an inevitable result. Anthony? My uh, prediction slash hope is that Marco Rubio wins the Republican nomination and becomes the President of the United States. Nick with a K? The Democrats retake the Senate in one of the most stunning comebacks in political history. Tom? Uh, in 2016, you'll see a hell of a lot more of Boris Johnson as he ramps up uh, to try to become the new uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain. Ali? My prediction slash hope is that Jeremy Corbyn leads the British Labour Party into absolute political oblivion and David Cameron reigns for the rest of the um, foreseeable future. Aidan? Uh, my prediction and, and sincere hope is that Bill Shorten continues to lead the Labour Party in Australia uh, for as long as possible and uh, we get to return to the government uh, in 2016. M? My prediction for 2016 is that Nat Fife wins the Brownlow and Fremantle wins the Premiership. Oh, we can only hope. And last but not least, Amy. Um, my hope for next year is that we see the end of um, GST on sanitary there we go ladies and gentlemen that was the outsiders in review for 2015 thank you for joining us let us know what you think on our facebook page uh, that's probably where you found us or on our soundcloud page uh, my name has been dylan caporn and we wish you and your family a very merry christmas and a safe and happy 2016.